Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. Welcome back to the Petronas Podcast. My name is Trisha Curtis. I am the CEO of Petronas and the host of the Petronas Podcast. And I am absolutely pumped today for episode 101 of the Petronas Podcast. This is your complete recap of everything taking place in the market. We're going to try to do this fast and relatively quickly and go through um, the Biden administration's pause on LNG export permits, um, on future LNG export permits, um, the uh, oil, massive oil price volatility that we've seen, what's really behind that. And we're going to talk about the Fed and Jerome Powell's uh, speech this week and and all the fallout. And I want to connect the dots for, for listeners between what's going on with the Fed and all that rate pricing volatility and what's going on with oil prices because there is a connection. And I do want to touch a little bit on some of the other things that's going on with the oil prices that you've seen um, this past week, which was a few different things, which there was a conference that was taking, Baker Hughes had a conference in um, in Florence, Italy this past week. We saw a lot of heavy hitting industry leaders, including Toby Rice, including the CEO of Baker Hughes, talk about um, LNG in the context of what was going on with Biden administration. Um, and in the backdrop of all that, when this was taking place, you also had the Saudis come out and say they're not going to, they're sort of pausing or temporarily pausing their ambitions or their investments in hitting their 13 million barrel day capacity target. So there's a lot to unpack with that. And then in addition to that, um, in all the oil price volatility, we had everything that happened on Sunday, which was um, an attack on on a, a U.S. base in Jordan, as well as a ship attack. And this all took place last weekend, and that led prices higher. So we've had massive oil price volatility. And then we've had subsequent prices going up and then prices coming down. So this week has been incredibly erratic and a lot, a lot of news taking place. So I'm going to walk you through all that news. And in the backdrop of that, we also have a couple, we have some activist stuff going on as well, where we are seeing Exxon really take a stance and push back on activist investors. Um, since the board debacle that we had on May 21st, 2021, where we had the three boardrooms where it was Exxon, Chevron, and Shell, we've seen since that time, we've seen a significant pushback and, and Exxon is actually actually suing a couple of different activist investors that are looking to be, you know, are looking to put proposals at their shareholder meeting. And you can listen to these shareholder meetings and you can, you know, hear the proxy statements and you can hear what's actually going on. So Darren Woods was on CNBC and I caught a, a short clip of that. And he was talking about this, of this pushback simultaneously, you know, suing these groups because he's basically saying that they're not helping him. And I think there, there really is a truly a, a fiduciary argument to this is saying, are these, are these activist investors actually helping your bottom line or are they, these activist investors um, just impinging the ability for oil and gas companies to do business? So um, that's one thing. And then secondly, is that something I have called for and long called for in the past couple of years is reverse activism. So it's basically getting on boards and of oil and gas companies and Push, pushing them to do better and actually produce more and push back on the ESG investor sentiment, which is preventing them or is putting capital into, into projects that aren't actually making money. And also it's not driving up their, their share price performance. And we're actually seeing that with, um, of all the companies in the world, um, shockingly, it's British Petroleum, formerly BP, uh, or formerly British Petroleum, now BP, is actually seeing that. So we'll touch base on that a little bit. But that's the that's the, the whirlwind overview that we're going to go through today. So we're going to start with this oil price volatility, and then we'll get into... Um, We'll get into the craziness with with the Biden administration pausing on on LNG export uh, permits, which is just really a, a big crazy factor in this, and, and definitely looks extremely political, and doesn't actually look like a smart political move on um, on the, on his part as well. Okay, so you've had oil prices swing. Right now we are sitting at, it is uh, February 2nd, Friday, February 2nd, 2024. This is episode 101 of the Petronas podcast. And right now we are seeing WTI at 72.13. We are seeing Brent at 77.90, or sorry, 770.20. This is going all over the place as I speak. Um, Henry Hub is down just above two bucks. We're seeing a Dutch GTF well under 10 at $9.22. And we are, we're going to come back to this, but I want to keep this timestamp. The 30-year mortgage is pushing up close to 7%. We're looking at 6.92%. That is really tracking tightly with the 10-year yield, which last night when I, I mean, last night it was 3.88 for the 10-year yield at one in the morning. And today, right now, it is 
um, it is, it's been 4.052%. It's, it, we're looking at well north of 4%. And we'll get into uh, the, the job rates. And when we talk about the Fed and what, what is going on at that point, we'll talk about the jobs data that came out today that sort of reversed a lot of stuff that the Fed had done over the week and all that volatility, which is, which is in turn actually causing volatility in oil prices. Um, but we have seen WTI come off. I mean, we almost saw on January 30th, I mean, this is only a few days ago, we saw WTI hit $78 a barrel on, um, we almost saw Brent hit $83 a barrel, and now we're seeing Brent at $77.20. So incredible oil price volatility. And part of that volatility is the Fed, right? So when people are, there's only so much money in the stock market, there's only so much money people are trading. So when you're seeing these dramatic repricing of yield curves and dramatic repricing of what the Fed is going to do, you typically are, you're seeing a correlation with oil price volatility as well. Um, so keep that in mind when we talk about this and why that's important. You're definitely, you are absolutely definitely seeing that. But we also saw over the weekend, we had this we, we had an attack on a U.S. base. Now, this is not the first attack, but this is the first claimed deadly attack. So we had three soldiers die. Um, there were uh, several do dozens injured on this base attack. Apparently, there was a drone coming in on this Jordan base uh, that we thought it was our drone, and it wasn't our drone, and it was an attack drone, and it caused three casualties. Now, if you were following this stuff around Christmas time when a lot of you know, we had thin oil trading and lots of volatility, but we also had, we've had a lot of attacks since the, since this war began, the war in Gaza on October 7th, um, which was instigated by Hamas since this war began, we've actually had a lot of attacks on U.S. bases and there was limit, you know, limited responses that the U.S. actually responded to. And now we actually, we did have people severely injured. Um, we've recently um, lost three Navy SEALs. I don't know if that's related, but, you know, given everything that's going on in the Middle East, it probably is. So that in and of itself, just having a, a, a strike on a U.S. base and having people die, which is really, really sad and awful, um, that obviously has to invoke some kind of response by the Biden administration, whether they want to or not, because they have to be seen doing something or this could keep incurring and, and lots of our bases could be at risk. So with that, that's a problem. And so that means that that was an immediate price spike. Um, you know, we saw in oil that everyone thinking, hey, this is going to escalate the war and the U.S. is going to have to respond. And it, it is really tricky because... These are definitely Iran-backed groups, but there's question marks or there's supposed question marks whether how much control Iran actually has. Now, I definitely will say that, I mean, Iran is funding this. They're getting this money, you know, when they're exporting 2 million barrels a day of crude oil to China and they're getting 75 to $80 a barrel for that and it's all going to China, they have plenty of money. They have several billion dollars in the bank each month that they're getting for this. So they can, they can afford to fund this stuff. Now, whether or not they can just turn off and say, do this or do that, who knows exactly, but we do know that every time Iran, you know, the Iranian people are not for this or don't seem to be, it's these hardliners in Iran. And every time Iran even attempted to get close to the Biden administration on a sanctions, on an agreement, um, then we saw the hardliners come out. And I, I, we have to be very careful. I think when you're, when you're looking at this map and you're seeing what's going on you're seeing the Houthis and all these attacks and these attacks on U.S. bases with drones, and then you're seeing these ship attacks, whether or not these hardliners are going to allow for any kind of peace to ensue. And so the reason we've seen oil prices come down is because there is a potential ceasefire or not necessarily a potential ceasefire agreement, but a, a something in the works with between um, Hamas and, and Israel in terms of a, a hostage hostage negotiations where that's getting better. Um, Qatar has been in the middle of that, helping with that. And every time there's something positive on that, you see potentially a de-escalation and prices come down. That means we, we're definitely not seeing oil prices price in accurately price in geopolitical risk. And I think listeners of this podcast will know that, you know, I tend to be when I, I'm really serious about the economy and the health of the global economy, and I do not think it's healthy. And I don't think the, the de there's pent up demand for, for, for oil. Therefore, I don't think, you know, oil prices should be ripping um, and going up. But that being said, we are absolutely not pricing in the incredible geopolitical risks. We, we have so much volatility in geopolitics and in the global economy and in just the global market and the macro, um, that oil prices are not factoring that in. And we are sort of an unprecedented level. And I think part of that is because people just truly don't understand it and they're not connecting all these dots. So you have this potential hostage exchange. You have, you know, every time there's a, every time you see a news point or an ease, I think you probably have algorithmic trading on that as well, that prices come down. Um, we also had, a, there were a couple things related is, so Part of the oil price is going up. We had an, a ship being attacked in the Red Sea, and this was actually Russian gas oil that was moving. So it, interesting that it was Russian. The Houthis or whoever was attacking this probably did not know 
whose it was. Um, but you know, I, I have to. I'm not saying that that the Saudis or Russians are saying, yeah, let's let's we want these attacks to happen. But it's certainly not hurting the Saudis or the Russians to have higher oil prices. Um, so they attack this 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 vessel. It was Russian gas oil. Um, and so you're you're going to have continued one. You're going to have continued cost issues where you're going to having escalated costs cost to insure ships. You're going to have escalating costs to move ships around the Red Sea, whether it's goods flowing through and going through the Mediterranean up into Europe, or whether it's uh, whether it's crude, or whether it's liquefied natural gas or as LNG, it doesn't matter. You're going to have limitations, and so costs are going to go up. Oil prices are not adequately baking that in. And then something that the Saudis probably did to help support prices, but could have been viewed in reaction to the market, is that is negatively is that the Saudi the the government of Saudi Arabia basically whether it's the economic ministry, whether the Department of or the Energy the Ministry of Energy, um, essentially came out and said, hey Saudi Aramco, don't invest in your 13 million barrel a day capacity right now. Just hit your work on investing in 12 million barrels a day. Now part of that's because the Saudis are going to miss their their targets, right? Their fiscal targets. They're not getting enough money in and they're spending too much money. So they want to rein in some of the spending. It's also part to tell the market, hey, we don't need 13 million barrels a day. So why are we investing in this? I would really caution folks to say that that they are not, they are the Saudis are absolutely investing in long-term capacity of at least probably 13 million barrels a day. And I, we will continue to see them invest in that. So this should not be taken um, as a signal to anyone in the market that the Saudis are looking at this world and saying, oh my gosh, we have an energy transition. Therefore, the world is not going to need our oil. That's not what's happening right now. That's simply a play on the market. Um, and it's a little bit different and nuanced, um, but I, I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't put as much long-term stock into it as some people might be thinking. And it's a little tricky for people to understand because you've long heard OPEC, you've long heard the leaders within OPEC, which is Saudi Arabia, basically OPEC Plus, saying, you know, the world's calls for the energy transition and all these cra this craziness in investment. This is hurting the long-term ability to invest for oil and gas, so we have to invest in that. So if they're saying that, but then they're saying, hey, we're cutting back on this 13 million barrels a day, really, that's just telling you that's about money and that's about near-term money where they do see a lot of supply elsewhere. It is also interesting that that means that the Saudis are not. You know, the Saudis are not getting directly involved in concerns about U.S. shale, and they're not going to they're obviously not looking to to crash oil prices. That doesn't mean they won't or that's not an option, but it just means that right now people they're clearly looking for stability. And, you know, I know that 70, you know, eighty three dollars is great. It's better than it's better than in the 70s. But as long as they're world north of 75, I think we're in decent territory where, you know, there's not a radical move for alarm. It's it's not amazing. And they, they do want slightly higher oil prices. But if you're not seeing 65 and it's staying there, that's very different than seeing, you know, 77 and change in this this move up. And I think they would agree. And we all know that we are we are not adequately seeing geopolitical risk price into oil. And so you do have, you have risks, you certainly have risks to the downside from an economic standpoint globally, especially with China, but you definitely have risks to the upside as well. And I think, you know, I'm, we're going to get into it shortly um, with the Fed and all this volatility happening with the Fed in just a handful of days, just like oil prices. I mean, this was a very intense couple weeks of news. Um, and I apologize to listeners. I've been completely in the weeds in, in writing papers. And so I'm coming up for air and, and getting you guys and clients caught up on what's happening around the world. And this volatility is partly why it is really important to think about um, is working with folks like Petroners is working with Petroners and supporting this podcast um, is because it's really important to get this information out there. Um, and before we get into the Fed, this is why why I think this is, is super critical, is if you saw, I mean, everyone saw this, but the Biden administration's pause on LNG export permits, um, you know, the impacts of that are really, really significant. I think the first thing you obviously heard from the oil and gas industry was this is ridiculous. And you actually heard from a lot of folks that this seems pretty ridiculous. This wasn't, you didn't hear a ton of people being saying this is amazing. I mean, we're, and this is really coming out of, I wouldn't say this is coming out of left field for the Biden administration. This is definitely in line with their, you know, climate change policies that they started this that they started on on day one, week one, first month in office of all these radical things that they did, including canceling a Keystone XL um, and then also issuing climate change executive order 14008, putting in that that immediate day one. Hey, we're not going to approve any permits on federal land for oil and gas and then basically curbing all lease sales and um curbing all, all the ability to do any offshore drilling or, or permitting um, out in Alaska. So this is in line with all of that. And that's what they actually stated. So it seems incredibly political. And by political, I mean, it is an election year. And it seems that the folks that are advising the Biden administration, and I don't think they're doing it correctly, um, but they're advising them that, hey, tell 
tell everybody the economy is doing great, talk about Bidenomics and lean into the environment stuff. And the problem is, is that they say a couple things every time they do that. When they when the news comes out that the, the Biden administration's polling is down, and this is really serious. This is, you know, I say this, um, and I'm trying to say this in a bipartisan fashion. I, I am no fan of the Biden administration or their policies, and I'm extremely critical of them. But it is it is amazing to me that every time that the data comes out, and so that you the Biden administration gets bad polling data, and then the response by the Biden administration when they get on TV on Bloomberg or CNBC, and they have an official come out and they say, hey, you know, that's that's what we see, and people say the economy's not good, but hey, if you talk to people, they think it's great, and look at all this great stuff we've done on lead pipes. And Oh my gosh, they mentioned lead pipes in the same statements they're talking about LNG and everything that they're doing on the environment. And, you know, people, when you're redoing lead pipes, one, I haven't seen them do that here in Denver. Um, that was done a, a few years ago, actually, by the by the city and county of Denver, I think. But it doesn't matter. That's not impacting people's bottom line. When people go to the grocery store, and that's what Jerome Powell, you know, was talking to, when people go to the grocery store, they're still feeling pain because the prices are still rising. And so even though you're seeing GDP go up, even though you're seeing jobs growth go up, what kind of jobs are these? Are these people making a lot of money? Are they making, are these, is this a, a future that, is this an economy that you build a country and a future on? And I would just, I would say no, you know, a service-based economy where, you know, people are going to the movies and people are going to concerts and people are working in the service sector is not an economy that you build a foundation on. It's an economy that you just get by and get through. And yes, people are spending, but are they investing? And I think the underlying economy is telling you that they're not, that this, this is not stable. And, you know, this, this lingering inflation Inflation is really, really problematic. Um, but that was, sorry, that was a complete tangent on, on Biden's administration policies. So getting back to these LNG export permit approvals, um, this was a, you know, I mean, it was crazyville because this is a super shock that if, if this was about CO2 emissions, this is ridiculous because the U.S. is producing 126 over 126 billion cubic feet per day of natural gas. So that is a massive amount of natural gas. Um, to put that in context, that's now that's gross withdrawals and production. So that's a record all-time high. We are at 13.3 million barrels a day of production, production two months in a run, in rowing, uh, running. That is a all-time high for U.S. production, but that's all-time high for any country in the world ever. So just an amazing feat. So our strength and our capacity is, is in oil and natural gas. And natural gas, we are the only country in the world that has actually been able to um, increase our, basically increase our GDP, which we have, we have the highest GDP in the entire world, and lower our CO2 emissions. And that is because of one thing, and that is because of natural gas and pushing natural gas in. And that is not done, you know, some of this was was facilitated, there were government incentives for sure. But really, this is largely market-induced, where tons of natural gas came on the market, that put the coal, um, basically coal out of business. And we lowered the prices and we had very low inflation. And we also had jobs because we lowered the prices of electricity. And now what we're seeing is rising electricity prices and very, very low natural gas prices. And that's because all the stuff that the Biden administration is doing and utility companies are doing and states are doing where they're forcing renewables into the grid, there's a direct correlation in Europe. And I assume a direct correlation in the US. But the the 2023 J.P. Morgan um, energy paper puts it very clearly, and they show a direct correlation between adding renewables, and that means wind and solar, into your grid and the and rising electricity costs. So when your penetration of wind and solar go up, your electricity costs go, go up as well. And we're definitely seeing that in the U.S. And that's something that the Biden administration, when they're talking about this, um, this pause on permanent approvals, they're talking about all the stuff they're doing on the environment. So it looks like a it looks like a push to to young voters, and I don't I don't think it's a good push. One, I think these young voters are also being impacted by inflation, and two, I don't think um, just pausing LNG export facility permits in the name of the environment is going to win you votes. It's also just incredibly poor policy. Um, you are you're not actually lowering CO two emissions. You're you're raising them. So the first reaction, one of the first reactions, obviously, was everyone saying this is ridiculous. Um, I heard uh, former Senator Mary Landro um, from Louisiana talk about this, saying you know how horrible this is to our our export partners, for our allies around the world. Now this is to non FTA countries that they pause these permits. So if you're not a free trade, if you don't have a free trade agreement with the U.S., you are potentially for future permits. This is paused. Now, this is um, Japan is not a free trade agreement country. So we there is a problem with that. And that that has long been, you know, we, we're exporting a lot of uh, liquefied natural gas to Japan. We're exporting a lot of crude actually to Asia as well. But we're exporting a lot to we're exporting a lot to Europe. We're exporting a lot to 
um, Asia. And it's a really, really serious thing in terms of the long-term context for this. But it, it puts a, it's a bigger deal right now for all these countries that were looking for U.S. natural gas and looking to switch their economies off coal and invest in natural gas for, for the grid, for their country, for their power generation, for everything. So huge problem with that and a problem if you are not an FTA country. So the statement, I'm going to read this now, it, it's more frustrating to read it multiple times. It's even more frustrating if you listen to it um, on fast speed. But this is, so this is January 26th. Now we knew this was happening a week prior because it was leaked and the news came out. And so everyone was upset about this before, but then it officially came out. And a lot of people were saying, hey, this, this, they're going to go back on this because this just doesn't make any sense. Well, they did it anyway. So this is a statement from President, it's, this is from the White House, statement from President Joe Biden on decision to pause pending approvals of liquefied natural gas exports. In every, and this is quote, in every corner of of the country and around and the world, people are suffering the devastating toll of climate change. Historic hurricanes and floods wiping out homes, businesses, and houses of worship. Wildfires destroying whole neighborhoods and forcing families to leave their communities behind. Record temperatures affecting the lives and livelihoods of millions of Americans, especially the most vulnerable. From day one, my administration has set the United States on an unprecedented course to tackle the climate crisis at home and abroad, securing the largest climate investment in the in the history of the world, unlocking clean energy breakthroughs through uh, clean energy breakthroughs that will power a clean economy and create thousands of jobs, advancing environmental justice for all, and rallying the world leaders to transition away from fossil fuels that jeopardize our planet and our people. So you know that is a speech. Like that's a that's a uh, that is a political speech. So you're you're waiting to hear you know in that first outline you're waiting to hear about this. Um, you know, these pausing pending approvals for natural gas exports, which a lot of folks around the world are in support of, even those um, even those that are very anti um, oil and natural gas. So you're waiting to hear this and you're clearly seeing this is very, very political. Um, so I'm going to continue. Quote, but more action is needed. My administration is announcing today a temporary a temporary pause on pending decisions of liquefied natural gas exports, with the exception of unanticipated and immediate national security emergencies. During this period, again, he says national security emergencies, but during this period, we will take a hard look at the impacts of LNG exports on, on energy costs, America's energy security, and our environment. This pause on new LNG approvals sees the climate crisis for what it is, the existential threat of our time. So this is a really, really serious issue, and this is serious regardless of where I stand on this, which I'm absolutely 100% against this. I think this is one of the worst things that this country could do. Um, however, when you elevate climate crisis to an existential threat, you are elevating this above war, you're elevating this above crises. And when they, he says LNG exports on energy costs, that's amazing, because it sounds like they're going to say that our exporting of LNG is hurting, our, is hurting the cost of energy. And it, it really does show how thin knowledge this administration is on natural gas, on oil markets, on understanding how this works. And I'm going to get into why this is really, really problematic when you are curbing the LNG market that's so nascent and new, um, what you're actually doing to energy security globally, what you're doing to energy security in the U.S., and what you're, what you're doing to the LNG market and the fact that you're not getting it off the map. And I do think there's, some, there's something to that of that they don't, that these people truly don't want um, gas to be a viable option, even though it is the only and viable option, especially if you were to lower emissions. So I'm going to continue because it's almost done. Um, while MAGA, yep, and they say MAGA in here, while MAGA, capital M-A-G-A, Republicans, willfully deny the urgency of the climate crisis, condemning the American people to a dangerous future, my administration will not be complacent. We will not cede to special interests. Wow. Um, <clears throat> gotta gotta pause here for a second because clearly there's a lot of special, a lot of special interest when it comes to green tech and a lot of special interest when it comes to China and green tech and a lot of special interest in lobbying on that front. Um, and just a lot of money being made on green tech as well. So that's a special interest. Um, that's uh that's not viable at all. Um, okay, continuing last paragraph. We will heed the calls of young people and frontline communities who are using their voices to demand action from those with the power to act. As America has always done, we will turn crisis into opportunity, creating clean energy jobs, improving quality of life, and building a more hopeful future for our children. So to me, this sounds, and I'm ending it now, that's the, that's that, the, 
statements that came up from the White House to me beyond political sounds like I'm literally tar he's just targeting young people. So, you know, I, th I think there's a lot of young people in the White House in their 20s that are ideology, you know, ideology based and they think this is it. Um, and, you know, maybe they, they truly believe in this or maybe they think this is going to win the votes. Um, this does not help the economy. Now, I think it's really, really important to think about this in the context of um, what LNG is. So, we have a we are producing 126 billion cubic feet per day of natural gas. We consume around 80 BCF a, a day of that. We haven't actually increased that much into our power grid, but we do increase that. And we still have we still have coal in our grid, but that's declined as natural gas is ramped up. You can see this on EIA on you can see our basically monthly and weekly, you know, when when wind and solar go down, natural gas goes up, coal goes up, nuclear is basically flat, et cetera. But 126 billion cubic feet per day, which means that's why we have such low natural gas prices is you know, we put a lot of uh, natural gas in storage, but we have a lot of production. We have so much production coming out of the Permian Basin. We have so much production coming out of the major basins like the Haynesville um, and the Marcellus, Marcellus being largely capped because we don't have pipeline capacity. Um, we, our ability to produce this molecule is easy. It's a small molecule. It is easy to get out of the ground. We absolutely know how to frack this stuff and to do it well and to get it out. So there's a big problem in that we have a ton of this. This is our national strength, and we're not being allowed to, you know, export vast quantities of it. Now, you can ask yourself, well, how much are we exporting? We're exporting about 12 to 13 BCF a day. Our last month's average figure was 12.6 BCF a day. Um, and we have seen, obviously, which Dutch TTF prices well under 10 bucks. Those prices have come down. You're still getting significantly higher prices when you export this as LNG than if you are sending it via pipeline to Mexico or Canada or if you're, or if you're selling it domestically at two bucks. So that were about 12 BCF a day exports. We are the largest natural gas exporter in the entire world. So this does come as a shock to a lot of people. And the reactions that you saw on the market globally was pretty bad. I mean, this happened on the backdrop of that Baker Hughes conference that took place in Florence, Italy, um, at the basically the same time. And it, this took over basically all the interviews and everybody when they were talking about oil and gas. Um, this instead of talking, there was a little bit of talk of, of about Saudi Arabia, obviously, and and their curbs on you know are their curbs on 13 million barrels a day to 12 million barrels a day. But really, LNG took over the LNG permit conversation and the Biden administration what they were doing took over, and that's because there's so much investment globally, both domestically in the U.S. and globally on natural gas, and that that isn't because they just say hey, it doesn't matter about politics. It's it's that they are businesses and companies, and they are saying that. They are saying, we have to look at what the actual demand for natural gas is. And we know in a global market, it's 400 billion cubic feet per day. Now, it came down a little bit last year because um, of the war in Ukraine. And, or sorry, I'm talking 2022. So in all of 2022, we saw, not 2023, we saw natural gas demand globally come down a smidgen, largely from Europe as they tried to curb. This was five to seven BCF a day that they curbed. This had a direct impact on their economies, which we saw, we have seen it over the course of 2023. But they curbed demand a little bit, That that's. but we're still essentially at a 400 billion cubic feet per day market where we're rising roughly um, eight to 10 BCF a day, the demand about eight BCF a day a year between sort of 2015 and 2021. So a lot of rising demand globally. Now the LNG side of that, we're exporting over 12 BCF a day. Qatar is exporting roughly the same amount. So is Australia. And so from that standpoint, we are globally though, the LNG market is only 52 BCF a day. It rose about two BCF a day, a little over two BCF a day in 2022. It's probably higher in 2023. But in 2022, we went from 50 BCF a day in 2021 for the LNG market to 52 BCF a day in 2022. Now, that's meaningful because that means the LNG is still a new and nascent market. Um, and, you know, this is a still a relatively, I wouldn't say new technology. I mean, this has been around a while. We know how to do this. But you, a handful of years ago, and I would even imagine today, the ability to trade, people were still doing this via WhatsApp on trading LNG. So when you think about, when you think about, the taking volatility out of the market and we talk about how volatile oil prices are and we we have seen really volatile and erratic swings over the past week when we go from you know we go from 78 bucks to down to 72 I, again that's five bucks but because oil is traded it actually takes that volatility out right there's a lot of transparency in the u.s market when it comes to production there's a lot of transparency in the u.s market when it comes to flows and there's we put out this data every week and so oil a lot of it prices off the u.s because we are 
We produce, you know, we, we're the largest producer in the entire world of oil. We are one of the largest, we're the largest refinery hub in the entire world. We have complex refineries in the Gulf Coast, and that sets prices as well. And we export a lot of crude, and we demand a lot of crude, about 20 million barrels a day of refined products. So we have this data and transparency that helps with the trading. Now, LNG, if you can imagine, the global oil market is 100 million barrels a day. And a lot of that is traded. The vast majority of that is traded and commoditized. Before the 1980s, when we had, you know, we didn't have the commoditization and trading of oil, OPEC had a lot more control on pricing. And so right now, you know, natural gas, you have to, you know, I know a lot of listeners know this, but it's really important to get the wider economy and world to understand that natural gas before LNG is a completely regional captive market, meaning Russia, because Germany and all the countries in Europe were were headlong into climate change and and green policies. They were leaning on Russia for their imports, so they were importing uh, 16 BCF a day via pipeline from Russia um, for natural gas. And to because their domestic production had declined because they wanted to get off oil and natural gas, and they just said, "Hey, we'll get it from Russia, and then we'll move we'll we'll get off of it at some point." The reason they were completely captive, and the reason why Russia was able to wage this war and why they had dominance of pricing, is because it's it's regional. You you couldn't ship it and move it around fungibly. And therefore, you know, they had price, uh, they had price capture and they had, you know, uh, basically Russia could set the price and, and these countries had to live with it because they were getting it from one country. It's a land base. It has to be compressed. It has to be moved via pipeline. Very much unlike coal, coal is super easy, right? We don't, we don't have to put it in a pipeline. We can put it on a truck. We can put it on a, on rail. We can put it on a barge. We don't have to compress. It can go in any vehicle. It can do whatever it wants. And that's why coal is so foundational to this topic of LNG is because it doesn't have to move the same and it doesn't have the same expenses to it. And it really does provide this backstop for energy security that Asia is looking at. So when we think about natural gas and we think about what U.S. natural gas did, and when we went from zero to 52 BCF a day on the global market, the moment that U.S. natural gas hit the water, the moment these molecules hit the water, we began impacting the spot price even for for pipeline gas because basically all, all gas was set at these regional price dynamics, and these guys were stuck. Right? If if you had to get your your gas from someone, you know they could set the price, and that's what it was. When the when LNG came onto the market, it gave all these customers optionality. They could build an import facility and they could get gas from somewhere else. And so it dropped that spot price down. And that's huge. That creates in and of itself, just adding even a fuel, you know, BCF a day on the market creates market optionality. And it takes the price capture and the price power away from these countries. And so from a energy security standpoint, globally, it is just hugely, hugely important to give optionality. Now, if we're actually talking about climate and if this was based on CO2 emissions, then you would be exporting every damn molecule you could out of the US and you would be trying to offset coal use and coal emissions in Asia. And that's not what's happening. And clearly, by the Biden administration pausing on this, that means that this is not about CO2 emissions. This is about politics. And this is ridiculous. And this is why that we have to now, as an industry and, and as economists and everyone, really get out there and be talking to the to people about this because this is so critically important. We now have to go back to Asia and we have to do all the work that we did 10 years ago on explaining to Asia that we have this natural gas, that we have all this, we ha- the geology is going to, you know, it's in the rock. We've got hundred plus years. We have way more natural gas than we'll ever consume. If you ask the natural gas to double production, if we built the pipelines and we built the export capacity, we could absolutely do it. This is doable. We could solve the world's energy crises in a heartbeat with our domestic natural gas. Now, that's incredible um, geopolitical leverage. That's incredible strength. That's peace through strength. The fact that we're not doing this rings a lot of alarm bells and is really, I think it's alarming to a lot of folks around the world. But when you think about Asia, this is such a huge problem for them. And there's a lot of work that's just recently being done. There's a really good um, NBR report on Asian, you know, energy security rearing its head. And it goes through all these energy, it's NBR, the National Bureau of Asian Research. Um, it goes through all these countries, basically from Japan and um, to uh, India and all these countries. And their really great report came out in fall of, la- fall of last year. And talking about energy security in these countries and and there's some points where it's talking about the need for LNG and the need for US LNG. And why this is so critically important, this matters, is that all these countries, so if you think of Asia, they're the dominant buyer for US liquefied natural gas. And so Europe is the marginal buyer, right? They had they had access to pipelines, so they were they came second. They came after Asia. And so when Europe in 2022 is starting to pull and demand all this gas, it's moving around the world. It went from going supposedly going to Asia to going up to Europe. Now that that drew and pulled on, you know, ships that were went from the US and they were, you know, filled with 
running off of diesel, and so it pulled on diesel demand, moved all these ships into, into Europe that were no longer going into Asia. Now, for Asia, if you're an Asian buyer, um, that changes pricing dynamics, right? Now, the ability to prices going up is one thing. Um, supply going down, and typically when you have less supply or you have increased demand, you're going to see prices go up. There's a difference between having price spikes and having supply availability. And we often see price spikes in the US, but we don't have a concern about supply availability. And so for Asia, they don't have that same comfort, right? They need to be assured that if they're investing their economies and they're building their grids and they're investing in liquefied natural gas to power their grid and to power their countries and their economies um, going forward, that they need to know that they can access that LNG, that even when there's price spikes, that they can still get the supply. And what happened with the war in Ukraine and all this volatility in 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 price and availability was it put a lot of question marks on that. And the, this, the U.S. being how flippant they are and how anti-American oil and gas and how anti-oil um, and gas in general that this administration is, it's really made Asia concerned about the longevity and the future capacity and where the U.S. is going to be and what the future of liquefied natural gas is going to be. Now, there's a, you, you heard at this Baker Hughes conference, folks talk about that, and I will, I will get to that in a moment, of the future of LNG and how they're investing in it, whether or not the U.S. is going to be play a part in this. But it really does matter for our Asian allies who have, we have spent 10 plus years explaining to them how much we have and why they need to, uh, why they need to not worry that we're going to supply them with this natural gas. So if they're not getting it from us, you know, are they going to be available to get it from others? Yes, they can get it from Qatar. They can get it from Australia. But it's this future question mark. And this is, again, where a lot of education and time spent on this is really important. If you think about all the countries and all the companies investing in natural gas, and I, I really, I absolutely believe and it will invest on, you know, would bet on that gas all day long. Because no matter what the policies are in Washington, the longer these types of policies go on, the more we will have a need for natural gas. No matter if we have, you know, if you have a change in administration or if you don't have a change in administration, demand for natural gas is going up globally, no matter what. And the ability, you know, we have to, as a, we have to, as, as folks in the industry and folks, um, economists and folks in market intelligence have to work to get this information out there. And folks in the industry have to invest in people like me to get this information out there so that you guys actually can put your molecules somewhere and you can actually export it. But the redundancy is really important. So when when the Biden administration pauses on these permit approvals, what they're telling what they're telling Europe um, or Europe is one, but what they're telling Asia is that hey, we're not here for the long term. So don't bank on our liquefied natural gas for the long term. And they were already concerned about this when we were shipping our molecules to, to um, Europe. And Europe, the European Commission came out in 2022 during the war in Ukraine or right after the war in Ukraine and said they are committed to actually signing long-term contracts and working on a long-term basis with the U.S. so that we can have LNG permit approval. And the fact that they even stated that is really, really critical because it's a statement and it's a recognition that the U.S. that the market requires long-term commitments from Europe to long-term contracts being signed so that the U.S. market can develop. So this nascent new 50 BCFDA market can continue to develop and evolve and create transparency and create molecules on the market and create global availability. Now, what's happened is that Europe has said that, the European Commission has said that, but that's not what has actually taken place. So we are not seeing long-term LNG commitments signed by European countries into the U.S. And we've actually seen, you know, Tellurian and we've seen Sharif Sufi lose his job over this is that we didn't to learning has been unable to get the investment to build the, out these facilities. Now, it's you got to be asking yourself a lot of questions of, we know the demands there. We know the future demands there. We know this is a 400 BCF a day market and growing. So why can't we build these facilities? And that's because of all this political wrangling and this uncertainty created in the market that you need to get folks that can look past this, that really understand the market and can say, I am betting on LNG exports. I am going to put my money into a long-term investment in the U.S. so that this, in 10 years from now, we will have the capacity to move this. And, you know, so when the U.S., puts this pause and you hear the immediate response before the, any information was even out, I heard from folks was that, oh, well, we don't need it because look at all the approvals we have. Now, that's true. We do have, we have a lot in the queue, right? Not necessarily built, but we have 14 BCFDA of export capacity right now. If we were to push it, we could probably be exporting 16, you know, a 16 BCFDA if we were trying to really push that nameplate capacity. Um, and we're exporting on average 12.6. So definitely market needs. But you need more. And part of that, like I was explaining in that long-term look and that nascent market, and you need more, just like in the pipeline side, you can't just have just enough pipeline capacity out of the Bakken or just enough pipeline capacity out of the Permian or just enough pipeline capacity anywhere, or you will have differentials blow out and the tightness in the market is a problem. 
for production to work and for the market to work, you have to have market optionality because if a pipeline goes down or there's a problem in Cushing, you want the option to send it somewhere else like the Gulf Coast. And so it has to move around or you have price dislocations and you have tightness. And so what happens is you end up having an overbuild in pipelines and then prices come down and then you have the flexibility in production. It feels comfortable and it ramps up and you need that ability. Right now we have way too much natural gas and we don't have the export capacity, but we definitely have the global demand. So it's completely mismatched. And once people get their arms around this and they realize that LNG can work and that it can be more fungible and it can really offset this captive regional price gas or regional price pipe gas, but really that it can actually be a, a, a sound alternative to coal and that it can, it, you know, it is an energy dense fuel and it does work and it helps power, you know, people's, you know, the lights and for people's businesses and that you can build a future on it. That's really, really serious. And it's something that has to be expressed um, over and over and has to be pushed is that this is, if this is about CO2, this is your answer. If this is about lowering your electricity costs, this is the answer. If this is about powering your future, this is the answer. Natural gas is it. Now, I know I went long on this. I think it's really important to talk about. I will continue to be talking about this. Um, I do want to pivot into Fed talk for just a minute. Um, but the the fact sheet that the Biden administration put out in addition to this, I'm not even going to talk to it. Um, it is really, it will put your hair on fire. It doesn't really talk about anything about natural gas. It just talks about all the stuff that doing, they're doing on climate and how great they are and how they're moving, they're moving the needle on climate and how by restricting the, um, by restricting the ability for us to uh, have other domestic fuels, they're enabling uh, lower prices. And by pushing um, renewables into the grid, they're enabling lower prices, which that is not what we've seen, folks. We have seen rising electricity prices despite having lower natural gas prices. And we're seeing these uh, a big, big push by the Biden administration to um, electrify the grid electrify the grid, I'm sorry, add renewables into the grid um, at an aggressive pace and clean up the grid by 2030. So they explain within their fact sheet that this is about um, this is about climate and this is about making sure that what the impact of of this is on climate. And again, that's why it's really political, because if it doesn't actually do anything, then this is just a political move. So either it is doing something or it's not doing something. And regardless, it's political. OK, so on that on the politics and on that political side um, and on the oil market, so I mentioned, um, or maybe haven't mentioned, um, U.S. Okay, so Exxon and and BP are in the news right now, and that is because of the activist stuff that's happening. So I think that's super interesting, um, and something we'll be talking about in the future. But the reverse activism that we're actually seeing with BP, formerly British Petroleum, where you're having this uh, folks come in and say, "Hey, we actually want you to produce more oil and gas." I think that's exceptionally interesting in the context of, you know, BP is going through a complete rethink and maybe this losing their CEO was a good thing for them because their interim CEO has now stepped in, is now their active CEO. And um, I, I've mentioned, I think I've mentioned this in the podcast before, but when I was in England and I saw the the news, the Financial Times, the ad say, um, and not or for BP, and that BP moved in this, this whole movement is saying and not or, and they're saying and we'll have electric vehicles and we'll have oil. Um, that's a big move for BP. And I think it's a move that we're seeing, uh, we are seeing a shift with a lot of these oil companies. So they're pushing back on an activist investor. And then you have Exxon, who is actually suing two activist investors. And that's a really steady progression and pushback. I really, I actually commend Exxon for doing this because I think that, you know, these activist investors that are getting on your board, unless they're trying to actually help you grow as a company and make more money and give money back to shareholders and increase your share price, um, then th they shouldn't be, this shouldn't be a, a part of it. Um, so they are actually suing a couple different groups and we'll we'll continue to talk about that more as that evolves. So, um, but at this at this Baker Hughes conference, so in the backdrop of every all this oil price volatility um, before the Fed commentary, but while the LNG stuff was happening, and as everybody's talking about this, um, you know, we had the attacks on the U.S. base, we had um, the attack on the ship in the Red Sea, um, and then we have this Baker Hughes conference in Italy with two thousand you know energy executives and a lot of late night interviews. And so the CEO of Baker Hughes he comes on TV and on Bloomberg and he says. You know, he literally says natural gas and LNG, it is a it's a transition fuel and a destination fuel. And I think that's really huge because that tells you the 2000 industry leaders in there are banking on natural gas being a destination fuel. And he said that it basically doesn't matter whether they get the gas from the U.S. because they are investing in this. City apparently came out with a report that says they, you know, they're, they could be impacted on a profit line, something like 12 to 17 percent. I don't know if that was profits or what exactly that number was, but basically the bigger hues could have a significant impact if there is reduced LNG, you know, if LNG export growth doesn't happen in the U.S. Haven't read the report, so I don't actually know. City, the, the, the CEO of Baker Hughes said, hey, it doesn't matter. 
um, we're going to be investing in natural gas. And if we don't get it from the U.S., we'll get it from somewhere else. Um, Toby Rice uh, did a great job. He was on, he was interviewed at, and I was up, it was like at one in the morning. He was interviewed um, right after that or around that same time. And he said the same thing. He said, LNG, uh, he said transition fuels is a fancy phrase for liquefied natural gas for LNG. Um, and he's absolutely right. And so, you know, he pushed back on this. Everybody's basically pushing back on this saying, you're demanding it. This makes no sense. And really, even if this doesn't mean anything, even if this doesn't materialize, it is causing all this volatility in Asia and it's going to cause them to double down on coal. And what the NBR report and what all these you know folks are talking about in Asia is that there's two things. They're doubling down on nuclear and that may or may not grow for some of these guys and coal because coal is represents energy security. And it really is, is so vital and so critically important to talk about China in this context is that China's coal-fired power generation is growing at a breakneck pace. It's well over 5,000 terawatt hours we do not even have a thousand terawatt hours of coal-fired power generation in all of the U.S. So if we are doing this, we're hurting the U.S. economy, we're hurting um, electricity prices in the U.S., we're hurting our allies around the world by not giving them liquefied natural gas, and we're saying, it's okay, China, continue to power your economy with coal and continue to power it with forced labor and make those solar panels and those wind turbines with coal and forced labor, and we'll just buy those from you. And that's increasing CO2 emissions, that's not lowering them, and that's directly, so you're, you're just playing whack-a-mole with this game. And then it comes back to this being more political than anything. Okay. So lastly, the Fed. Now we had the Fed meeting this week. Uh, Jerome Powell got on TV on Wednesday and he said, um, you know, he, he, he did not, I just listened to it. I listened to it on fast speed and re-listened to it. You know, he was not overly, I don't think he was overly dovish. He was not overly hawkish. He tried to strike a middle balance. Um, he did allude to, basically, he alluded to, we are going to have Fed rate cuts. That's the tra trajectory that we're on. And so when he was asked on the March cut, he said, no, we're not cutting in March. That's basically what he said. So, you know, we had a, ma a major repricing. So every time the Fed, I think we actually see a lot of pretty high correlation between Fed volatility and rate pricing and oil price volatility as well. Um, every time you have this, you, you have volatility in oil prices. Every time you have this Fed rate repricing volatility. So I think it's very important if you're following oil prices to be watching the 10-year yield and the repricing of that curve. Um, so literally last night, I'm looking at three, I'm looking at 3.8% and change for the 10-year yield. And now we're seeing above 4%. And that is because despite this long talk, and there wasn't a ton of news within his, within his conference, I went through it. You know, he basically said the labor market remains tight, but it's becoming more in balance. Um, he said, you know, they're now looking for, you know, they're not looking for growth, that that's not their mandate. Um, and he said that, um, or that they, he said that they don't have growth in the mandate. Um, he did say, quote, people have a right to be unhappy. And he was talking about with higher prices, saying that prices are, you know, inflation is coming down, headline inflation is coming down, but you still have these prices rising. And that's a really serious thing. It's something that I don't think a lot of folks appreciate is how, you know, how much we still have these price increases taking going on. And that's when we look at Biden poll ratings, the direct correlation, the direct cause of that is that is how people feel about their economic well-being. You know, we saw UPS data. UPS is cutting 12,000 jobs. I think that that's really serious for the oil and gas industry because we, we have, you know, we hear similar things out of FedEx, not from the job cuts, but from how bad the industry is doing in terms of moving packages. Um, so if you have UPS cutting 12,000 jobs, um, one, that is actual job cuts and layoffs, but um, that's on the back of a company that had to go through those strikes and it had to go through those, um, the wage price negotiations and go through the the labor union stuff. So that's a company, when this happens to these companies, this is what happens afterward. And they lost business to FedEx as well. So that's really serious. But what we saw was after all these, this, the market interpreted the Fed comments as they, they interpreted the Fed everything. They wanted to make it dovish. So the market goes up. Everybody, all these tech earnings go up. Um, they're price perfection. So who knows where they're going to go, but everything goes up. And then the rate pricing, you're starting to see the 10 year old come down and everything gets priced down. That's very bullish for the stock market. Even if, even if the earnings are completely out of whack, the market's going to go up or some stocks are going to go up. If people think the fed, if the fed is going to cut rates and that's, that's going rates are going to come down. So there was a little bit of, there's been crazy volatility in the repricing of the rate curve of how many rate cuts we're going to have this year, whether or not we're going to have six and people are still pricing in six. I don't know how you're going to do that if we're not cutting in March. And the reality is that we still have sticky inflation. And the serious thing is that if you have a good economy, you shouldn't have a reason to cut rates. And that's where that's a big problem. The reason why the yield curve went up today is because the jobs data came out. It's Jobs Friday on February 2nd, 2024. And we added 353,000 jobs. That's not the ADP number. That's the actual U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics number. That's a lot of jobs. And so 
yes, um, so employment's unemployment figure is still 3.7%, um, but compensation is up. And that is a problem because that means that if you're a business, you're paying your employee employees more. And all this contributes to kind of persistent and sticky inflation, which means that it, the Fed doesn't want to have to, you know, they shouldn't want to be in a position where they cut rates and then inflation stays up or goes up because then you're sort of this stagflationary environment and you're not growing. Um, but you saw earnings up. You saw a 34.1 hour work week. So that's a pretty, I mean, that's literally six hours off of a normal 40 hour work week. People, if you're on average only working 34 hours, that's a pretty big deal. It means people are not working that much and they're getting paid more, which that's a problem on the productivity side. That's still down. You heard Rick Santelli on CNBC talk about this. Um, and then the compensation costs are up 0.9% from that's almost a full percentage point from September to December 2023 and up 4.2% across 2023. Huge problem there. If you have if you have compensation costs up, you have strong job growth, it means that we still have this we still have this economy that's going. And I'm not saying an economy that's going is bad. I'm saying from an inflationary standpoint, you have to cool something off. Something has to give because housing prices are still going up when you know you have a near 7% mortgage and something will have to give and you have this rising consumer debt. We know that we have credit card debt that's at all-time high. Um, we know that it's at record highs. We know that people are are buying buy now, pay, pay later. And we know that a lot of folks are, are really stretched thin, even though they're spending, even though they're living, even though they're going out and they're doing stuff. So at some point, they'll, there's a breaking point. And all this has significant repercussions for oil and gas prices. And I think oil, you know, to an extent is telling us something, you know, oil is telling us that the global demand, particularly in China and the weakness we're seeing in China, which, you know, we don't have time in this podcast and we will definitely be spending time in future podcasts on this, but the Chinese economy is still very, very weak. Um, and we saw that in a slug of data, you know, China, China is being pressured to, to do more for their economy. Um, you heard that from Starbucks, you're hearing that from Apple. Um, sales are down for Apple for iPhones in China significantly year over year. Um, that's because iPhones are very expensive, but that's also because of the bans on iPhones that China's putting in place. Same for Starbucks, is that Starbucks is an expensive coffee. And so cheaper, cheaper coffee, uh, other coffee companies in China are dropping their price. Um, I think that the basket of goods, the actual uh, till and sticker prices, the average basket price dropped 9%, which means people were buying less um, in China and tr to drop the price um, at Starbucks. So all that's really, really significant and serious. And so oil prices are telling you that they are kind of headlining and saying, you know, the world economy is not supporting robust demand growth, which is telling you the world economy is not super healthy. Um, and I think that's just something really, really important as, as despite I am, I am bullish on near-term price spikes because, and, and potentially, you know, over the, the volatility that we have in this world and how hard it is to understand really does support um, near-term price spikes in, in oil prices. And I think, you know, I am going to uh, give this as a testament to why 2024 is an excellent year for you guys to, you know, if you're listening to this and you've been on the fence about reaching out and becoming a client of Petronards, 2024 is the year to just do it. And if you're really on the fence, just become a podcast sponsor. We'll get you on a sponsorship. You'll support this information. We get it out to people. We get it out to the market and you support my ability to go speak at conferences and do things. I, I love this work. I'm incredibly passionate about it. And, um, and I love working with my clients. So this is the year. And the reason why is because all this volatility and all these question marks, you know, are we going into recession? When are we going into recession? And what does um, lower oil prices, despite all this geopolitical volatility, actually mean? And what does it mean for your business? So with that, guys, I hope you have a wonderful week. I can't wait to talk to you again. The next podcast is going to be episode 102. And that is going to be the keynote address that I gave to the Rocky Mountain GPA conference. It is still very, very relevant. I just thought this was highly important to talk about in the context of everything that's happening. So thank you so much for listening, folks, guys. Talk to you soon. Bye.